following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute, Loving Wayward Souls. Good morning. I trust you all rested well last night, even though I know that's unlikely. Conference are hard places to rest, aren't they? But they are places where, where, where gifted people, gifted lay people, gifted people in ministry can, can assemble to study God's Word and to, to share their heart and to enjoy what happens when a community of people that are trying to help others come together. And I can't tell you how excited I am, not only to be invited, but to join people like, like, like Zach Eswine, who has served so many pastors in so many places and, and, and leaders through his preaching and writing to, to join uh, Elise Fitzpatrick, who, who is just this articulate, incisive, clear voice helping the church apply the gospel and, and quite honestly helping old pastors like me to know how to think about women and the church and, uh, and to see Jim again, and, and uh, Tim Challies is here as well, and he's dedicated his life to helping the church build discernment. These are just wonderful things for us to be able to experience together, and I just, I count it such a rich blessing to be with you. So you can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Title of this morning's message is Rugged Love for the Wayward Soul. Another non-expository message, if that means anything to you from last night. And let's just stop and, uh, and pause and, and go to Jesus together and ask for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you that we were able to lift our souls in worship to you and to be reminded of what you have accomplished upon our behalf. And now we have this task, Lord, of looking from you down here into the earth and, and to see and experience and explore and discuss some of the challenges of fallenness and yet we realize that you are here as well, Lord, that you are all around us and that you are, are work in powerful ways through the things that we want to discuss this morning. And so I pray that you would give me an ability to serve these good people, give us ears to hear, and help us find you together. In Jesus' name we pray. The question I want to explore with you this morning might be best phrased in the following way. Does true love ever tolerate evil in the name of good? Does true love ever tolerate evil in the name of good? Or maybe another way to ask the question would be to say, does biblical love working with this theme of the wayward, the prodigal. Does biblical love ever appease the prodigal to fulfill a higher call? And just so we don't leave that as abstract questions, let's look at, at some specific situations. Let's put some faces onto those questions. Um, recently, I met with a woman, I'll call her Lily, Lily has been married for 15 years. She's got a house full of kids and a church-going husband who hasn't acted like a Christian in about seven years. And her husband just has this pattern of berating her and ignoring the family and spending most of his time with with his drinking buddies, just going out and, and enjoying himself much the way he may have done when he was in high school. And so when Lily tries to appeal to him, 
he says he's he just says hey i'm i'm hopelessly unhappy in this marriage but i'm a christian and i'm not going to divorce you and yet she's pretty certain that he's seen at least one or two other women outside of the marriage now to use the language to pull the language back in from last night that we talked about he is obviously renounced his role as a husband, renounced his role as a father. He is rejecting the wise counsel, beginning of his, with his wife, and then with his pastor and others who have appealed. His shields go up immediately. He doesn't want to hear anything. And yet you have Lily, who, who's in this marriage. You have Lily, who knows the Bible. Lily, who wants to obey God. Lily, who wants to display the love of God. And yet she lives haunted by this question. What do I do when my best attempts at love just seem to make the situation worse? What do I do when the best that I have, the best attempts at love, at gospel love that I can bring into this marriage, it's not like it, it, it's not like it just remains the same or inches the ball forward a little bit, but it seems to make things worse. Okay, now hold Lily out there. Let's just move her to the side, leave her hanging suspended. Let's go to this other situation. Happened just recently. I received an email. In the subject line of the email was, does loving my wayward addict mean financially supporting him? Does loving my wayward addict mean financially supporting him? And I began to read through this email. I'm, and you know this experience. You, 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 you sit down to listen or you begin to read. And you immediately know that the pain is, is palpable. You could feel it in every sentence, in every word. But, but I, I discerned that there was this, this kind of deeper question that was driving what they were communicating to me, which is, what vision of love should determine my actions or our actions with respect to this person we love who is an addict? What vision of love should determine our action? Does love open its hands? Does love open its wallet once you're serving an addict or, or somebody who is obsessed or in this narcissistic kind of parallel universe? See, the delicacy of this question is that, that addicts do inhabit a kind of parallel universe where, where manipulation is the currency by which they stay alive. Manipulation is the currency by which they remain addicted. And it's often possible because the family that is around them or the support system that is around them is more emotionally invested in the prodigal than the prodigal is invested in the family or the support system. So to say it simply, the prodigal is loved more than they love. And that can arm a person who's going wayward, arm a person who's prodigal with a kind of with a kind of strange superpower when it comes to the balance of the family and the rhythm of the family because they can easily exploit and control those who love them. We, we, we mentioned last night they have no skin in the game, and yet they've left a reservation. They play, they're playing by no role, roles whatsoever. And, and it's from this, this kind of you know, ecosystem that comes the worst forms of enabling, or I should say, the most unhelpful forms of enabling, or the most unhelpful forms of accommodating a behavior in the name of love. Because when somebody that you love deeply begins walking down that road, it can trigger powerful fears in the heart of those who, that love them. Or, or, or they can, it can trigger this idea that somehow by showing them unconditional love, that my, my display and my commitment to unconditional love toward them will overrule their self-obsession. But here's the thing about this, the nature of prodigality. We talked about this a little bit last night. I want to unpack it a little bit more this morning, and that is that prodigality often fosters a selfishness that feeds off of benevolence. It fosters a, a self-obsession that will actually feed off of it. See, it, there's no, it's no coincidence that in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of the, of the elder brother prodigal son 
The prodigal son goes to the father, asks the father for his inheritance. The dude's not even dead yet. He's asking him for his inheritance, which is as outrageous, even more audacious back then as it sounds to us today. He's basically saying to the dad, I wish you were dead, but I would like to receive from you the benefit of you being dead. I want it. I want it now. I want to spend it. I want to go off. See, there is this, there is this selfishness that's fomented that sees the, the father, knows the father might be benevolent, knows the father might be generous, says, give me half of my inheritance. And, and, and in the family system, oftentimes, you can, you can fall into this push and pull of, of, of appeasing that behavior. And the appeasing doesn't really serve them because they're in this alternative universe. They're in this delusionary world. Did you ever hear the, uh, the quote by Churchill? Churchill once said, an appeaser is one who feeds the crocodile, hoping it will eat him, him last. <laughs> the appeaser feeds the crocodile, hoping it will eat him last. And, and, and there's that sense that, you know, the, the crocodile's always hungry. The crocodile, you know, you never quite feed him enough. Okay, so there we were talking about the email I received. So we talked about Lily. And, uh, and Lily's question, well, you know, what do I do when the, my best attempts at love just seem to make things worse. And then the email that I got in, which was, does, does loving my wayward mean just continuing to, to financially support them? And third thing I was thinking about was that the, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention was just recently upended by the forced resignation of Dr. Paige Patterson. And Dr. Patterson was was guilty of a, of a cluster of comments that, that were shockingly tolerant of abuse in marriage. Now, I'm not going down the road of criticizing Dr. Patterson, but, but more to observe that there was a time that he was speaking out of that had a certain vision of love, a certain application of love. I think it was misguided but it was an, um, an application of love, and it was probably drawn from 1 Peter chapter 3, where the unbelieving husband is, word, is one without a word by the conduct of the spouse, of the wife. But the application became that, 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 that she just needs to trust God and endure even if wickedness, even if abuse, and, and God will ultimately transform the husband. And and, and, and quite honestly, you know, this is one of those public situations that should have every pastor, anybody that stands with a microphone in their hand, should have all of us looking at ourselves. Because I'm quite certain I have stood in front of people and said stupid things. I'm quite certain I have said misguided things and foolish things. And, and, and sinful things. And I pray that I haven't said things that leave the weak or, the, or suffering people feeling as if they are unprotected or they don't have, have advocates or actually they're the problem. But near kind of the, the juicy center of all of these three profiles is a question that just refuses to be dismissed. And the question is, does true love ever tolerate evil in the name of good? Does love accommodate wrong because they have a vision of a greater right? Because of a greater right. And it was out of this wrestling that the idea for a, a rugged love came, came to the forefront for us. And, and, and for Paul Gilbert and I, in, in writing this book on, on letting go rugged love with a wayward soul, for a wayward soul, what, what we were thinking about is, is the areas where love has teeth. And, and so what I want to do for you is I want to define for you what, what I mean when I say rugged love and then just talk about a couple of those those things and apply them a little bit. So love is rugged when 
Love is rugged when, number one, it's strong enough to face evil. It's strong enough to face evil. Number two, it's tenacious enough to do good. Number three, it's courageous enough to enforce consequences. Number four, it's sturdy enough to be patient. Number five, it's resilient enough to forgive. And number six, finally, it's trusting enough to pray boldly. Trusting enough to pray boldly. So we don't have time to cover all of these, but let's just think together about two or three of them, beginning with the first one. Rugged love is a love that is strong enough to face evil. And what I mean by that is that when when someone we love goes wayward, they begin to walk the foolish road, they begin to renounce their roles, they begin to reject right voices, they move from the fool to the wayward, the wayward becomes not only a direction but a destination, that facing their problem can be a real hurdle. If we're one of the people that are in orbit around them and we love them, facing their hurdle, because first, that decline can be really subtle. It's not just like it appears one day, but it, it can be a really subtle thing. It's not always easily detected. You know, some incidents happen. You wonder, what's that all about? You speak to them. You assume that they're incidents and not a pattern. So that's one of the reasons why. But, but also there is, when someone we love begins to go in this direction, it triggers profound anxieties within the average person. Profound anxieties about them, you know, the one we love. How did they get here? Why, why do they seem to love darkness rather than light when for years we've been doing family worship and we've been exalting in the light? I don't get it. So it's fears about them. It's fears about ourself, ourselves. What, what, what did I miss? What was it? What, what was missing in, in the package that we were trying to put together to raise this child or to love our parent? Or, or, or what does this mean? Or why do I feel this, this shame now? Or it can be these pressing anxieties that result in questions about God. What, what did I do wrong? What is God trying to teach us through this situation? Or often it goes to, is God punishing me through this in some way? You know, we, we had a daughter that went through some very dark times. And I, I remember dozens of times being in this situation where I, I realized that, that the information about what was going on was this two-edged sword. You know, I, I, I needed to have it. But man, I didn't always want it. I, I needed to maintain a perspective of, of where she was. But the information brought pain. The information brought shame. The information illustrated the loss of control that I had. The illustration or the, the, the information confronted me with, with these feelings like I was a failure as, as a parent. And so the point I'm making is that the questions are so complex and the information is so convoluted and so painful that a lot of folks just won't go there. They just don't want to go there. See, we're talking now about being strong enough to face evil. One of the first challenges is people don't ultimately want to go there or they don't want to name it. So, for instance, you have, let's say, a wife who knows her husband as a a serial adulterer, and she, she kind of has found a way to move forward in the family just kind of looking the other way. Or you have a parent who knows their child is involved in porn or involved in drugs, but they don't really want to ask a lot of questions. They don't really 
want to investigate. They'll ask, they'll ask the superficial questions that'll satisfy, you know, parental due diligence. That, that sense that, yeah, I think I, I, I asked enough so that I can go to sleep tonight. See, one of the things that we begin to discover as we wade into this world of prodigality is that the worst lives aren't the ones that our prodigals tell us. The worst lives are the ones we tell ourselves. And this is why rugged love starts with strong enough to face evil. And this is why I asked you to turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 9, where it says, where the word of God says, let love be genuine. And then it pulls this second idea right up alongside of it. Abhor what is evil. And then we're going to talk about the third idea in just a second. But let, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. So what's interesting about this is now we're, we're being asked by God to straddle a tension here of genuinely loving somebody despite the knowledge, the confirmed knowledge that there is this abhorrent evil that they may be pursuing and perhaps, God forbid, even embodying. See, when, when love is rugged, it does not need to manipulate the truth, to ignore the truth, to deny the truth, nor is it passive towards evil, that, that there is a strength because of the love of God towards us, because of the power of the gospel, that we can face evil. And it's not just to bring good leadership, although good leadership is important. It's not just to, to bring integrated leadership or strong leadership or, or, or anything that has to do with something we're manufacturing. See, the, the goal here ultimately, ultimately is to mirror the gospel of Jesus Christ in the situation. It's not to mani manipulate behavior. It's not ultimately to try to change them through a new way of thinking about leading in this situation. It's to mirror the gospel. See, at the cross, what we have is we have the perfect love of God that meets the wickedness of evil. That's the kind of love that we start with in the gospel. Love and abhorrence meet at Golgotha. They meet at the cross. See, the cross is not God's workaround, you know, so that evil doesn't have to be dealt with. Again, our point here is strong enough to face evil. The point I'm trying to make, the connection I'm trying to make is we find this in the gospel and we need the power to do this from the gospel because in the gospel we realize the cross is not God's workaround. It's not God winking at evil but really saying, you know what, I'm going to make it just all about love. The satanic scope of evil is fully exposed in the gospel by God the Father unleashing his holy wrath upon evil. And the inestimability of that evil, the height of that evil, is seen in the fact that there is only one payment that could be accepted in order to, to propitiate God, in order to satisfy the problem, and that was the blood of the Son of God himself. So the cross is God's abhorrence in action. That's what it is. And, and yet... Genuine love drives the whole enterprise. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so in the work of Jesus, in the work of the gospel, we see a love so vast. And, and here's where I'm going, and I want you to pay careful attention to this. It's a love so vast, a love so strong that it actually works to accelerate the downfall of evil. So, just to, just to kind of put this back in the real world, for the wife that I was talking about earlier that married the serial or is married to the serial adulterer, it may mean first that, that she's not just ignoring the behavior, but that she's actually broaching the conversation with her husband in a very courageous manner and persisting and informing him 
and letting him know that she's praying, and then also honestly opening up conversations with other people that she trusts and respects. Hopefully she's involved in a church, and she's opening up that conversation with her pastor as well, and that there is a plan being put into place that requires incredible courage on her part, but a plan put into place where ultimately she's not going to live simply tolerating an evil. Which means for her, she has, to, she has to abandon the illusion that this peacekeeping venture is actually helping her. This peacekeeping, this way of thinking, it, here's how it works, is, is I stay in this situation for the kids. I stay in this situation where there can be at times uh, horrific evil that plays out within the home because keeping the peace seems to help the kids more. And, and being strong enough to face evil means that we're strong enough to really look at those, those statements and those convictions, some of which are embedded deeply in fears and in anxieties, and to no longer ignore the destructive sin that is not going to bear good fruit within the home. But, but nevertheless, with, with this woman... You know, she's going to need a lot of help. There's going to be this, this dread. If she, if she decides, along with the wise counsel, that the best thing to do, for instance, is to separate for a period of time, there's going to be a dread that she experiences over leaving. There's going to be an incredible anxiety that, that is triggered by walking into the unknown, perhaps even having children with her, and not really having a game plan. See, even, even when your world is delusionary, it's the only one you know. Even when your world is delusionary, like it's one of the things with addicts. They have a community. They have a way of living. You know, they have a sense of peace. These are my people. This is my place. Even when your world is delusionary, it's one you know. And so disrupting even a delusionary world is a very frightening thing for that person. And so there has to be a love that is strong enough to face evil, not only in using this situation for her, but for the people around her, that helps her to swap, swap the value systems, peace for truth, short-term gains for long-term benefits. And let me just say, if you're here this morning and you are, and you are facing evil, let me encourage you to think about this passage, Romans chapter 12, verse 9, think about the pathway here. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Actually, let's add the third part now. Hold fast to what is good. And we'll just, we'll just riff off the last part of that passage in order to move on to our second point which is that rugged love is a love that is, number one, strong enough to do evil or strong enough to face evil. Forgive me. Strong enough to face evil. <laughs> Secondly, tenacious enough to do good. In other words, naming evil is important, but it's only the first step. Love is made rugged by a commitment to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good, Romans chapter 12, verse 21. And to do that because, well, first, we, we love, we love the people that are going through these things. We love the people that are wayward. We love the people that are experiencing these this prodigality, this waywardness. But the challenge is this, the reason why doing good for them is part of rugged love is because as a prodigal or a wayward person begins to drift more from God, their, their world shrinks to the size of themselves. And they become this, this universe of one person. And all of their decisions are made for themselves, in light of themselves. And, 
and, and what's going to benefit themselves. And so that pattern of, of growing self-obsession, of naked self-obsession, a reckless disregard sometimes for other people, what happens is, there, is that attacks the affection that you feel for that person. It's, it's a human thing. It, it, attack, it, it erodes the affection. It incites a sense of righteousness, which if it's unrestrained, quickly becomes self-righteousness. And it can poison the relationship that we have with that person. And we just want to write them off. And we think somehow that's the high road to just write them off. See, see when you love a, love a prodigal, it, your heart is kind of like a, like a bank account where there's never any deposits made into the bank account. There's only withdrawals taken out of the bank account. And it's, it's, it's you cutting checks for them in some way. And, and they're just taking and spending. And, and they, you know, they'll take your trust. You'll say, okay, well, maybe we've taken a step forward and maybe things are a little better. And so you give a little bit of something. They'll take that trust and they'll exploit it in some way or take your affection and reject it in some way. And the temptation for us, even in a counseling situation where you're, you're developing a relationship with them and it's, it's you know, happening once a week, but over a long period of time, and it's beginning to happen to you, the temptation is, is anger. It's, 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 it's to express foolish things. It, it's to feel ashamed because when you're, on the, when you're the object of somebody who's basically saying, um, I, I want your resources, but I don't want you. I want your support, but I don't want any relationship with you. There's, that incites shame issues within the human soul because that's part of what it means to be exploited. You know, that's the nature of exploitation. And so that's why, that's why doing good is so important. And doing good isn't just important because somehow it protects the relationship. Doing good is important because it goes again to the gospel. It goes again to the power of the gospel. See, the gospel is so significant that it, it enables these deposits of love into our heart that are not dependent upon what the prodigal does or doesn't do for us. In other words, we're not trying to get the strength to love them from the things they do for us, the way they respond to us, whether they're applying the counsel we're giving to them. In fact, they're not even in the picture when it comes to doing good for them. So you remember Lily? We talked about her. Uh, Lily, you know, Lily may decide in the name of doing good. Uh, she may decide to write notes to her husband indicating that she's praying for him and that there's a hope that she has for the future. Or, or from the email that I was telling you I received when the, in the subject line, does loving my addict mean financially supporting them? Well, well, they may not allow their addict to live at home in that season, but they may invite him over to dinner regularly. Or they may give him food, buy him food, or they may give him gift cards that will enable to, to do that. But my point is that the good we do is intentional, and it doesn't perpetuate the evil that they're pursuing, but having made the stand for truth, it then finds ways to express love, not because it's just a good thing to do and we want to be good people, but because, because we see that in the gospel. See, when it comes to this kind of waywardness and prodigality, we don't want to be living a constant defensive game where our good depends upon their behavior because, you know, basically it's a, it's, a, it's a lost game. It goes nowhere. So what we're doing is we're determining before God to do good, not because they have earned it, but because the gospel reminds us of how we were treated, how we were treated when we didn't earn it and when we didn't do anything to deserve it. 
And when we truly understand that, when we really wrap our brain around that, the gospel begins to, to tenderize our heart for good works. Because it reminds us that we were the objects of God's mercy long before we had done anything. In fact, I think our status was enemy of God when God decided to save us. So as ones who have received this great mercy, we are now called to pass it along to the prodigal. Actually, if you want a good passage, one that's really functional, Luke chapter 6, verse 34, listen to this, and maybe even listen to this passage with, with a new set of ears. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Now check this out. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He is kind to the ungrateful. Well, let's just stop there. I mean, how many times are you in a situation where you don't want to be kind to the ungrateful? Are you a parent here? I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever raised a teenager? He is kind to the ungrateful, but then it's like Jesus says, okay, have you had, has that settled on you? Because I'm about to ratchet it up. I'm going to take you to a place you never expected to go. And the evil. He's kind. You know, I've been meditating, thinking, praying from John chapter 13 lately. And, and, and this section of Scripture starts out in a fascinating way. You know, it's, it's Jesus on the night before he dies, or the night before he's arrested, the night he is arrested. And it says, Jesus knew that his time had come. That's kind of how it starts. And that he was returning to the Father. And then it says, having loved his own who were in the world. That's how the disciples are described. Having loved his own who were in the world, and then it says, even unto death. And that's the beginning. That's like the opening salvo to where he then stands up. He takes the towel. He wraps it around himself. But he, actually, even before that, I think the next verse 2 or verse 3, it says, during supper, the devil had already put it in Judas's heart to betray Jesus. So he's loving the, the ones that God had given him even to the end. And then we're informed, informed Judas is there. And Judas, the devil, has already put the idea in his mind. And Jesus knows that Satan's doing that. And then later on in this passage... Peter's mentioned, and Peter's saying, I'll stand with you. It doesn't matter, Lord. I'm your guy. He said, Peter, you don't get it. You know, you're going you're gonna to fail in an in a unbelievable way, in a historic way. And, and how does Jesus then mark that moment? How does Jesus love them to the end? Well, he stands up, and he, he wraps a towel around himself, and he stoops down, and he begins to serve and wash their feet. And we're talking about Peter washing his feet. We're talking about Judas washing his feet. And then he says, this is the lesson. He says, if I have done this for you, and you almost completely expect him to say, you should do it for God. In other words, I've served you, you serve God. This is a transactional thing that we're arranging here. You see it in play right here. I'm embodying it. No, he says, you serve one another. And so, Jesus has this idea that loving to the end means serving, number one, those who don't get it, number two, those who will betray him, number three, those who will deny him, number four, those who will become amazing disciples too. And then he says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. It's because you love one another in that way, because you love one another through these things. And it's only a love that is rugged. Only a rugged love can be kind 
to the ungrateful and the evil. To be tenacious enough to do good. Dr. Martin Luther King once said, quote, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Let's mention one more category. Courageous, courageous enough to enforce consequences. We, we touched on this last night a little bit, but I also mentioned that I was going to return to it today. You, you remember what, what we said about the nature of prodigality? That this is what prodigals want. It's real simple. They want it all. They want it all. In other words, they want the benefit of the relationship that you have, whether that's a sibling, a parent, whether it's a child. They, they want the benefits of that relationship without the cost that that relationship might bring. They want, they want kind of a, a, a Christmas morning life. You know, Christmas morning is, is where we get all this cool stuff and we don't pay for any of it until you're an adult. But, but one of the most established strongholds in a prodigal's life is that I should be able to choose without consequences. I should be able to live without consequences. And, and so in, in Scripture, we see the reason why that's called foolishness is because, because God sets up the economy of his kingdom in a completely different way. And in Scripture, consequences are often the tools that God uses to tutor us towards spiritual sanity. And, you know, beginning all the way back with the law. You know, the law is outlined, Moses, Mount Sinai. If you, if you sin in these ways, there will be these consequences. First generation of Israel doesn't even enter the promised land because of the consequences. The child that's conceived from David's adultery dies because of the consequences. Romans chapter 1, we talked about a little bit last night. For all they knew, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. He gave them over to dishonorable passions because of the consequences. Now, because, because prodigals are living blinded to consequences. This is really important. Because prodigals are living in a world that they have created where they are blind to consequences, it's, it's very important that those that love them allow them to bear the consequences and to stop the carousel you know, the carousel is something you get on and you just go round and round and round and it might be a little entertaining, but you don't make any forward progress. You, to stop the carousel of explaining away their behavior, of, of intervening when consequences come upon them in some way. And, and here's, I mean, let's, let's just recognize that the reason why this is so difficult is because when you're dealing with somebody who's gone from being a little foolish to a, a full-blown fool to wayward to rejecting counsel to rejecting roles those consequences can be heartbreaking they can be painful those decisions can be costly they can be hurtful sometimes even harmful but Dan Allender once put his finger right in the middle of this thing when he, he said, he basically said, in order to repent, prodigals must feel pain. In order to repent, prodigals must feel pain. Now, it's not the pain of bitter people around them inflicting pain upon them or making them pay. No, it's, it's a pain that has come from the consequences that by the design of God can ultimately work to collapse the illusion that they are living under. And because it's coming from outside of those that love them, 
they pay more attention to it. And that's the brain twister in the whole thing. I remember one father dealing with a 16-year-old wayward daughter. She, she wouldn't keep any agreements, wouldn't do what she said she was going to do, dropped out of school, wouldn't curb her destructive behavior, was always threatening to flee, was basically trying to hold the home hostage to her way of thinking, her way of doing life. And, 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 and so they felt the best way to love her was to take the hit, to call the bluff, and to, 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 to well, he, he wrote to me, and he said this. He said, eventually, we had to realize that our vision for love was too small. It was confined to what we could control. If she stayed home, we felt less anxious. But for some reason, the home had become this humongous stumbling block for her. Eventually, we became convinced that we needed to show her a love that was strong enough to impose consequences. And so, with tears in our eyes, we asked her to leave. And, and actually, that reference and his words kind of bridges over to a core idea in in the book, which is called Redemptive Release. Redemptive Release. And it goes to a paradox that we see in Scripture that's, that's difficult to understand, but it, the paradox is that sometimes God pursues us by releasing us. And releasing means letting them go, letting us go. In other words, to, to change the circumstances of the prodigal so that they must bear the burden for their decisions and they must bear the consequences for their selfish choices, which sometimes involves doing what this father talked about, asking them to leave, sending them out. And when you love someone, whether it is a spouse or it is a child or it is a toxic personality in your life, when you love them, one of the hardest things in the world to do is to abandon a story that you have in your mind where your patient love wins the day. Where where your patient love within the home ultimately turns them, that this is the point, God, I know what this is supposed to look like. I have it in my mind. This is how the narrative is going to be written. Ultimately, it's going to be hard. It's going to last for a while, but, but love is going to win. And, and more often at the crux of that problem is, is, is not just the fear that we have, but, but this, I can fix this. I think I can fix it. I, I know that if I can just be in here long enough, working this problem, bringing some leadership, bringing some love, bringing a new way of thinking, becoming the Holy Spirit, I can fix this. And here's the thing, and this is, a, this is really important, particularly in the home situation, is the prodigal becomes aware of this. The prodigal becomes aware that they are your project. And that you're going to take them one way or the other. And what happens is that it mutes your voice in their life. And so sometimes getting them outside of their comfort system is actually what helps to reset the way they think about life, self, God, and all the things that seem to be coming against them and destroying them. Because in the home, they feel this entitlement. But outside of the home, they have to bear the responsibility of their choices. They have to bear the responsibility and the nature of your relationship to them changes where you can begin to serve them and they don't feel entitled to your service because they're not living in your home. See, the prodigal son in, in Luke that we talked about earlier, he didn't just cash out and hang around the estate, you know, his father didn't enable him to do that, at least. 
son wasn't afforded the privilege of just sitting around the house being the entitled man-child playing, you know, computer games. He had to go. He had to be let go. And the point from from a biblical standpoint is that God sometimes shows his grace by releasing us to pursue what we want until we see what we really need. He releases us to pursue what we want until we see what we really need. And, and this, this happened in a situation with a guy, I'll call, him, I'll call him Jorge, and his wife, Ashley. Jorge and Ashley were believers. They had one child attending a solid, solid church, but Jorge had a secret. And Jorge's secret was he was abusing alcohol and he was concealing it from Ashley. He had it stashed at different places in the home and she'd go to bed and he'd get up at night and he would drink oftentimes through the night. And, and then it began to affect his job because he would appear like he's leaving in the morning for his job, then he would stay home. Sometimes he wasn't able to do his job, so it was affecting his ability to work. And Ashley discovered the whole thing through, just by by stumbling upon it, she discovered his secret life, and she confronted him. And they went to their pastor, and they met with their pastor, and got some counseling. And he made these promises, I'm going to change, and and, uh, it's going to be different. And for a few months, it, it did seem to be different. Things were looking somewhat promising, but all that wasn't really the case because he was just becoming a lot more stealthy in the way that he was pursuing his idolatry. And so one day, Ashley had to go into the trunk of their car to get something that she thought was in the trunk, and, and she popped the trunk, and there was this stash of, of hard liquor, which totally freaked her out because she thought there was none of that around. And, uh, and she went to find that there was... Uh, there were charges on the credit card. There were other credit cards that were set up that she didn't even know about. And the, uh, the family was now in a full-blown financial crisis. And Ashley began to realize that Jorge, her husband, he, he loved her on, on some level, but he had become a master manipulator. And that she was at a point where she honestly couldn't trust what he said. And she didn't just bail out initially. She had tried long-suffering and forbearing and sitting with counselors and sitting with the pastor, but it was evident that this addiction had taken over his life and, and that he was preferring it, that he was pursuing it. See, see prodigals face like two fierce cravings. One is the destructive things they desire, the, the relationship they desire or the way of life they desire or the, the, whatever they're pursuing their addictive behavior towards. So the two things they, they, they crave is the destructive things they desire. And then secondly, the key resources or the arrangements they need to indulge the first craving. And so, you know, he needed, Jorge needed to be at home. He needed some income. He needed the support of his wife to maintain this in a comfortable way because as long as a prodigal indulges the first thing without consequences, you know, without consequences to the key resources, they have little motivation to change. And so what you're doing is you're recognizing what the prodigal needs to perpetuate the, the behavior they're pursuing and you're working to wisely disrupt the system. And so, if there was any hope for change between Jorge and Ashley, Ashley couldn't change his desires, but she could alter the resources, and she could alter the arrangements of their living. And so, what she did after meeting with pastors and others is she moved back home with her family, which was across the country. And and she worked out with Jorge these specific guidelines for him to see his child, to get help for what he was doing. Uh, She wasn't trying to punish him. She was trying to make it. She she cast vision for the future, 
of them being married where this wasn't a preoccupying part of his life. And she told him that if he really was a Christian, as he professes, that he would stay involved in his local church, he would stay involved there for support and for accountability. And she chose this path, which is unthinkable when you think of a new baby, when you think of moving across the country. It was a rugged love. And, and when love has teeth, man, can it spark reflection in a prodigal? You know, can it, can it get them thinking about what they're doing? And so for Jorge, he began this slow and excruciating turn away from his sins and towards the truth. And it was two steps forward, one step back. Part of it was just the loneliness he had to deal with as he came home each night and he realized, my family's not here. They're, they're across the country. Jorge says, I worked. This is what I did during that time. I worked and I wept, and I wept, and I worked. But, but over time, this, this fierce desire for, for alcohol began to be replaced as he was getting counsel, as he was being prayed for. There was a replacement. There, it was being swapped out for a desire to have his family back, to have integrity in his life. And uh, over, a little over a year later, they were, they were reunited and that was about six years ago. Now, you and I have been around long enough to know that that's not always the way it works out. But that's what it's like in a fallen world. And that's where we're called to love and live and serve. With this place where there is this mystery of lawlessness. And, and yet to recognize that, that encircling all of it is this providential God who loves us deeply, and that, and that in, in the way that he moves within creation, there is this thing called wayward. There's this thing called the fool. There's this thing called prodigality or being a prodigal, which is this painful, mysterious lever that, that providence pulls from time to time for reasons that we don't see for years. It sets in motion a number of different things, and it makes no sense to us, and it doesn't seem to bear good fruit. And, 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 but it exposes these commitments we have to be the fixer in the situation, to be the Holy Spirit. And, and it really does reveal who we trust and what we ultimately believe about the gospel. One of the things we're going to be talking about tomorrow morning is just the nature of faith, faith for the war of attrition that can take place when you love a prodigal. But here's, what I wanna, here's where I want to end, and it's just to remind you that however you're coloring yourself into this picture, wherever this content touches your life, whether it's in counseling, whether it's as a parent, whether it's just somebody that you love who's very dear to you, the suffering that you are experiencing matters deeply to God. And, and one day, it's going to matter deeply to that person as well. And until then, may God give you and may God give us the courage to exercise this, this rugged love and to apply it in a way that gives him glory. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, I want to thank you for the hope that you give us from your word and for the strength of your love that didn't deny evil but saw beyond it and saw the hope and the help that, 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 that could be in us because of the magnitude of your love and because of what you accomplished for us upon the cross. Lord, I want to pray for each person here again for the people, the burdens they bear in the form and shape of people, the faces that have been flashing in their mind throughout the last hour. And Lord, I want to pray that you would stir their, their courage and their hope and their confidence in your promise. Lord, that you would help them to know how to love ruggedly and how to do good consistently 
and how to flee bitterness in ways that allows their service to be much more pure. But Lord, not to do it all, to get a notch on our belt, but simply to mirror the gospel of which we were objects and from which we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2018 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.